0: We are in the book of Hebrews, and we are in chapter 5, and if you remember from last week, we started a section that's going to go all the way through chapter 10, talking about Jesus as our high priest. Um, There was a commercial a number of years ago uh, for, and this is how good my memory is, um, I forgot who it was for, but the essence of the commercial was Someone had a good night's sleep in a hotel, and they felt like they could do anything in the world because they had a good night's sleep in that hotel. And the tagline was, you know, I'm a doctor today because I got a good night's sleep, or something like that. Someone's gonna come and tell me what the name of that hotel chain was, but that's irrelevant because the point of that is that you definitely want a person who is a doctor when they are performing surgery on you. Is that correct? Absolutely. You want a person who is an actual bona fide mechanic when they start taking hammers and, well not hammers, um, wrenches and (laughs) sockets to your car, right? You want someone who is qualified, who is suitable to the task at hand. You expect that. Just because they're a nice person doesn't mean they should operate on you. Just because they look like a mechanic doesn't mean they are a mechanic. It's incredibly important, and we judge people, and I think rightly so, by their talents and their skills and their abilities and how well they fulfill something, and you get burned once, you get burned once, and you won't go back to that same person again, but it's important because we train ourselves to be suitable to the task. As nice of a person I may be, you do not want me stopping on the roadside helping you change a tire. You don't. And we might be friends, I might give you a hug, I might shake your hand, it might be great, but you want someone who is suitable to the task. Nowhere does that become more important in our lives than we start talking about our relationship with God. We need someone suitable to the task, made for the task, good at the task, to make sure that we are right with God. Because so much is on the line. Our eternal destiny is on the line. Our very happiness and joy for eternity is on the line. This is not a small matter of a surgery or fixing a car or having someone do repairs on your house. This is major. This is the biggest event we will be engaged in forever. Our relationship with God. And whoever sets that relationship right, has got to be where we put all of our effort and energy. That is the person that we have to look to for faith and comfort and acceptance. Who is suitable to bridge that gap between our sin and God's holiness? In the Old Testament, God started out by saying, I'm going to put a certain group of people in charge of that. And so he put this group of people called the Levites. And the Levites was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and God said specifically to Aaron, who was Moses' brother in Exodus, you specifically are going to be in charge of all my priestly duties, not just you, Aaron, but your siblings, your other younger brothers, and your children. And so throughout the entirety of history in the Old Testament, Aaron and his family was in charge of priestly sacrifices. Now, in Exodus chapter 28 and 29, as well as in Leviticus 7 and 14, they lay out a lot of guidelines, but I just want to read just one short passage out of Exodus 29 to set the stage for what their job was. Because when we say the word priest today, we have a lot of misinformation, and I would say... Let me just stop at that. Misinformation when we use the word priest. Now, we know in the context of the Old Testament, I get it, there were priests. Even in the New Testament, there were priests. But today, that idea of priest really is divisive within the Christian community because of the way that word and office has been abused. And so in the Old Testament, God sets out very clearly what Aaron was supposed to do, what his goal was, and why he was supposed to do it. And just a little tidbit of that is in Exodus chapter 19 starting in verse 10. This is God speaking. And you shall bring, talking to Aaron and his sons, you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. That would have been the tabernacle, the temporary one. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull and you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of its blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out on the base of the altar. Do I have to go into any details about what that might look like? You got it? Okay, all right. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung shall be burned with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Typical day in the life of a priest in the Old Testament. Yuck! Yeah, I mean, that's why I go to the grocery store and buy my meat. But... God wanted to be super clear that dealing with sin is an ugly, messy, gross, disgusting, clear in your face costs the life of an innocent. It costs life and blood, and it's gross and it's disgusting. But that is how God deals with it. And he gave Aaron very specifically the task of making that all come to pass. And so every priest that served in the Old Testament had the same goal, same purpose. I'm going to slaughter animals and sometimes grain offerings and fruit offerings and bread offerings, and I am going to display before everyone in Israel the grossness of the smell and the sound of sin being dealt with. Messy, bloody, ugly. In fact, there are some accounts of the Old Testament in history books where at a day of atonement and sacrifice when Israel was required by biblical law to make sacrifices it would not be uncommon for the streets surrounding the temple to be more than ankle deep in blood. The smell, the flies, all to remind you of how Horrible it is to deal with sin. And God specifically gave that task to Aaron and his sons and his descendants of the tribe of Levi. Now we get back to chapter 5 in Hebrews because we set the stage for looking at the purpose of a priest. And I just mentioned Aaron and all of that in the Old Testament just to kind of get us in the right mood and mindset of what a priest looks like and does. It is not an easy job, and it is, it's gross. That's really the only way to put it. It's gross, dealing with dead animals, burning and slicing them up and cutting out certain parts for certain things and putting blood everywhere. Verse one of chapter five says, for every high priest chosen, which would have been Aaron and his sons, from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the whole point of a priest. A priest is to be that go-between God and man to offer sacrifices for sin. That is a tremendously important job. If that job is not done, dealing with sin between God and man, then you are left in your own sin. You have no way of atoning for it. You have no way of dealing with it. You have no way of making it better if someone doesn't step in and performs that task. And in the Old Testament, the Levites, the priests, took care of all those tasks. You did not sacrifice for yourself. The priest did it on your behalf. They had a very specific role, suitable to their gifts, talents, and calling that no one else had. Only they were able to do this, and it was very specific, dealing with sin. Dealing with sin. And look at how that verse describes it. First of all, these are people chosen by God, appointed to this very task, that they would create this relationship to God, that they would help it, that they would further it along, that they would restore it. And the way they did that was through sacrifices for sins. That was their goal, that was their purpose, that was their one task at hand. How do I sacrifice the animal rightly? and administer all of the parts rightly so that the people's sin would be forgiven. I cannot imagine what pressure that must have been on the priest, what pressure that must have been on Aaron, because that small little bit that I read was just one set of verses next to chapters of wear this, don't wear this, wear this, don't wear this, walk this way, don't walk this way. I mean, there are so many little rules that God set up specifically to show how dangerous this was, how important this was, how special it was. These people were trained in that because they realized that the rightness between that person and God was dependent upon their performing the duties rightly. Everything was thought out because God is very specific, very detailed, because you cannot get this wrong. If you get this wrong, then you may spend eternity in hell. Your sin not dealt with, faith not present, hope not there. You are desperately lost without this act being taken care of, sin. It goes on, first of all, the purpose of the priest was to deal with sin. Secondly, the problems with the priesthood can be seen in verse 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Whoever the author of Hebrews is certainly has no qualms. (laughs) Kind of almost feels like insulting us, right? I mean, this is how he describes the people the priests are sacrificing for. He can deal gently, I love that, with the ignorant and wayward. Oh, the people of Israel, the Israelites, uh, the Jews in particular, they're ignorant and wayward, not us. I mean, we got it all together. But the priests were there to help those poor people who couldn't figure it out for themselves. Now, the priests were there because the people's sin was so disgusting they could not handle it on their own. They needed someone to mediate between themselves and God. And they knew how to do it. They knew the system. They were well prepared. They understood the gravity of what was happening. It was not just simply killing an animal and spreading its blood all over and making sure the fat and entrails were separated and, and cooked together differently than the flesh. No, 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 no. They knew that the end goal and result was to make peace with God so that the people could exercise their faith and trust in God that he would one day end all of the animal sacrifices once and for all and provide his own substitute Like he did for Abraham and Isaac. And the priest's job was to make that right. And not everyone understood it. Not everyone grasped the entire complexity of it. Not everyone understood all the steps. And the priest was rightly made for that role because he knew how doubtful people were. He knew how incomplete people were. He knew how sinful people were. He knew that they didn't get it because he was one of them, he was just like them. Wayward and ignorant Needed to be taught and trained And equipped for that task And not everyone could give themselves to it But the Levites The descendants of Aaron Could give themselves to it That was their whole goal and purpose To fulfill that role Of mediating between man and God But they were imperfect at it But they could relate to us Verse 3 continues that problem with the priesthood Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he did for those of the people. See, all of that that I read in Exodus 29 was the sacrifice setting the stage so that Aaron could then sacrifice for you. Wow. Aaron had to get his sin dealt with first before he could be an appropriate priest to deal with the sins of others. Now, that only makes sense. Physician, heal thyself first. That idea of you better have your life together before you start telling other people how to live. Well, Aaron had to get his sin dealt with. How was he going to deal with his sin? There was no priest to do it for him. He was the one. So it shows the weaknesses of the priesthood in the Old Testament is that they were already at a deficit. They already had to go through a system of rules and regulations and laws just to get ready to take care of your sin. You see, they, too, were sinners. They had the same doubts. They had the same struggles. They had the same uncertainties. They had the same weakness of faith. They had every struggle you have. And how are they, then, the ones who are supposed to get you right with God if they can't be right with God? You see the problem? That there's always someone not right with God and no one to fix it because they had to deal with their own sin first. And so God gave them tremendously detailed operations and rules and plans to deal with their sin first. And after they dealt with their sin, they were now able to be a a bona fide, ready, well-equipped, and free-from-sin person to offer sacrifice on your behalf. But that was the problem. They had to deal with their sin first. They couldn't just step into that role and succeed. Something had to be fixed in them first and foremost. Verse 4 talks about this idea of a calling of a priest. We already saw that in a little bit in verse 1. The high priest was chosen from among men. People just didn't simply raise their hand and say, I'm going to do it, and they decided to do it. A little bit different than how we do like ministry today, but God was the one who simply said, you can or you cannot be a priest. Not everyone or anyone could do it. It says in verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, or only when God, no one can take this honor for himself, but only when called by God. That makes a lot more sense. Just as Aaron was. There is a, a small story in the book of Numbers 15 or 16, uh, where a gentleman by the name of Korah was really upset with Moses and Aaron because he felt like they were kind of like taking the spotlight. And he was rallying a whole bunch of people around him, a couple hundred people, and they went to complain to Moses, basically saying to Moses in number 16, Uh, that uh, you need to spread the power around a little bit. Uh, You know, there's too much concentrated power with you and Aaron, your brothers, and uh, you're leading as kind of the prophet and the king. You're telling us what God says, and now Aaron has this role of making us right with God. It's too much power in just two people. You need to share it, and we're here to take some of that power from you so that you don't... uh, you know, so that it's shared a little bit. So it it feels more like we're doing it together as opposed to being dictated by uh, kings, maybe. And so Korah had all this complaint, and Moses, basically, at the end of hearing all this complaining and whining about not sharing power, uh, laid straight before God and said, I don't know what to do, God. And God comes back and talks to Moses, and in the end, God simply says to the people of Israel, I need everyone who is with Korah to go stand with him by his tents and his household. Anyone not with him, I need you to leave him and go far away. And so Israel gets divided. Not by much. It was only a couple hundred people that went with Korah. But he went around his tents. He hung out there, and he's waiting for God's next move. Do you know what God's next move is in that entire story? you know what happens? God opens up the earth and swallows them, and they're dead. And God goes in this entire story, I am the one who puts people in charge, not the people. I'm the one who chooses, who leads, who sacrifices, who's the prophet, who's the spokesman, who's the king. I choose it. You don't. Now, there's a lot going in Korah's mind and the friends that followed him being prideful and arrogant and um, definitely complaining, which God does not like at all, complaining against his ways and how he set things up to the point where he just caused the earth to open it up, and it says it swallowed them. Can't imagine the fear and terror that happened, but it only happened at that tent, not throughout the entire nation that Israel, or the entire camp that Israel was in, but only in that one spot. God controlled his judgment, and his judgment was complete. And I can imagine after that happened, very few people said, even under their breath, I should be a priest. I should be the leader. Let's go tell God that he made a mistake appointing Moses and Aaron. I imagine all of that stopped immediately once they saw God's judgment upon the children of Israel in such a dramatic way. So when it says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, I imagine the Hebrews that read that understood completely the story of Korah and went, yeah, I remember when Korah tried to do that, what happened to him? Buried. And I imagine it was more than six feet underground too. Destroyed, wiped off the face of Israel. This brings us into verse 5 and 6. That starts the real positive side of things. So far you may see kind of negative and, you know, dealing with sin, people having to deal with their own sin before they deal with God's sin, that idea of you better take the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye. The priesthood was filled with people with logs in their eye, just like the church is filled with people with logs in their eye, just like I am filled with logs in my eye, trying to surgically remove the specks in others deal with what your sin is first, but verse 5 and 6 completely changes the narrative to one of incredible hope. Listen to these words in verse 5 and 6. So also, so in a similar manner to the human priests that are the descendants of Aaron, in a similar way, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He didn't act like Korah and say, God, I'm supposed to be the one in charge, even though he's the son of God, fully God and fully man. If anyone had a right to lift up his hand and say, I'll lead, it was Jesus. But Jesus, as a demonstration to us on how to relate to God, was humble. He was the one who knew how to do it. He was the one who was perfectly suitable to that task. He was the one who was trained for all eternity, but he had no born, had no born, he, as God, he had no beginning. As an infant, he was born, but in that process, he simply remained silent and quiet until God placed upon him his full ministry, which I believe happened at his baptism by John the Baptist, when the Spirit descended upon him like a dove and declared, This is my beloved Son, setting out his special anointing to the task of being a priest. Yes, a priest, but more importantly, the final priest. There is no priest, I don't care what title you want to give someone, priest is not the title, because every priest beforehand was supplanted by Jesus, and anyone who claims the title of priest past Jesus is just like Korah. I'm in charge of sin and dealing with it. No. It's only Christ. He says in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and he's quoting in Psalm 2, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have placed you as the one who will mediate between God and man. You're the one who is suited to the task. You're the perfect surgeon the perfect mechanic, the perfect chef to deal with this. You're the perfect priest to deal with sin. As he says in verse 6, as he says also in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, We're going to get to this in a second, the Melchizedek. But these verses are telling us that God uniquely and specially appointed Jesus Christ to be the one who was priest, the high priest, the priest, your priest, the priest for all sin, the one who would make suitable and right sacrifice, following the law, following all of God's commands, being perfect in how he did it to the nth degree, without fail or falter, doing it one time, and it completely succeeded and never has to be repeated again. Sacrifices are no longer a thing in relationship to God. And we've mentioned this before in the book of Hebrews. It does not matter if the temple in Israel is rebuilt and they start sacrifices again. That is not what God wants. Sacrifices have ended And I know it's ended because Christ has risen victoriously. I know it's ended because the temple curtain was torn in two, saying there is no more separation. There is no more priesthood necessary. And anyone who stands up and claims, I need a priest, I will direct them to Jesus. I'll tell them about the great high priest. I'll tell them about the final high priest. And I'll tell them about the one who is still ruling and reigning. And no human... No, no matter how pious they may be regarded, no human can take that place. They are not Jesus. And Jesus has never appointed anyone to follow in his footsteps. He doesn't need anyone to follow in his footsteps. Do you know why? Because he's still doing it. He doesn't need help. He's accomplishing it even today granting forgiveness because of his sacrifice. Each and every day when we cry out, forgive me, he is acting as high priest, saying to the father, don't acknowledge their sin. I did it. See my hands, see my side, see the cross. That's the sacrifice. It's already been paid for completely. And Jesus was the one appointed no one else. Then in the last few verses, this is what Jesus does accomplish as our high priest. Verse 7 through verse uh, 10. In the days of his flesh, as his fancy words for saying when Jesus was around on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's that name again, Melchizedek who in the world is Melchizedek? Glad you asked, because I happen to know who Melchizedek is. Well, back in the days of Abraham, Abraham had a nephew. His nephew's name was Lot. I'm sure he had many nephews, but the one we know of is is Lot. Lot had lots of troubles with lots of people. Eventually, Lot has to be rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but before that, Lot got into other trouble with other people in the area and was captured, and Abraham went forward with his mighty men, rescued Lot, and at the end of that rescue, Abraham had to deal with the people that took Lot. And in dealing with him, uh, we read in, I'm going to lose my place here. We read in Genesis chapter 14, I'm just going to read a couple verses out of here, that briefly describes and introduces Melchizedek. Melchizedek is only mentioned here in the book of Genesis, a couple, uh, twice, well, once in Psalms, and then a few times here in Hebrews. So he's not, like, a great character in Scripture as far as the number of times he's mentioned, but when he's mentioned, he's mentioned in incredibly reverent terms because of his relationship as a type of who Christ would be. So, in Genesis 14, Abraham is the father of faith. That is what he's called. He's the one who God called out of Ur, the land of Chaldeans, and gave the promises to through Isaac. I mean, so he is, he is rightly so, as the song says, Father Abraham. He is the father of not only Jewish history and faith, but of our faith, we are children of Abraham. And so anyone who Abraham deals with becomes significant. How do we deal with him? How does the father of our faith, the one who was given the promises, deal with this person? So we see at the end of this initial battle with the king of Sodom, Abraham says, or says in verse 17 of Genesis 14, after this, he returned from the defeat of uh, Chedorlaomer the kings who were with him the king of sodom went out to meet him in the valley of shavah that is the king's valley so after this battle with abraham all the leaders kind of get together again and in verse 18 and melchizedek the king of salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of god most high first time it's mentioned priesthood and it's happening in the book of genesis Way before the nation of Israel was even a nation. Way before Israel was even born. Way before the 12 tribes. Way before the Exodus. Way before Moses. Way before Aaron. There's this guy that shows up on the scene. First time he's mentioned in the story of redemption. He's a priest. A high priest of God. And his name is Melchizedek. It means the king of righteousness. The king of righteousness shows up. And he's a priest. And not only that, he's the king of this town called Salem. The significance of that is the word Salem in Hebrew, in English it means peace. So he is king of righteousness in a city, in a domain called the city of peace. And his first act to Abraham is to do what? Bring out bread and wine. Where else have you heard about bread and wine being connected like this? It should remind you of the Lord's Supper. Communion, what Jesus did in celebration of fulfillment of the Passover, showing that his body and his blood are like bread and wine. And so he brings this
1: early
0: semblance of communion to Abraham and sets it before him, just like Christ sets himself as a sacrifice before us. I don't think we should lose the significance of how these words are are presented and his actions, and his name. And this is what happens next. Verse 19 and 20. And he blessed him and said, that is, Abraham blessed, or no, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So first, this mysterious individual comes onto the scene. He's already a priest of the Most High. Abraham's probably thinking, I thought I was the preeminent one. I thought I was the one all this was starting with. No, 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 this goes way before Abraham. God's people have always been here. But this guy is special. No one knows his descendants. No one knows his ancestors. No one knows how he came onto being. He just simply was there when Abraham came back from victory, and he has a position of authority over Abraham because he's the one who brings the meal, and he's the one who blesses Abraham, and Abraham's the one who serves him by giving him a tenth. Now, this is not a correlation to tithes and offerings. God establishes that later on in Scripture. But it is significant that Abraham recognizes in this high priest My role is a servant. They take lead. I follow. I'm blessed by them. I don't bless them because I can imagine Abraham had every right as the founder of the faith in this situation that he should be the one blessing. He should be the one giving. He should be the one getting. But no. Moses or Abraham recognizes immediately this serve. So that takes us back to Hebrews, which should give us just a little bit of clarity when they say that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek or Jesus is stepping into this role as high priest in the order of Melchizedek, that this predates all of Aaron's role as high priest. This predates all the sacrificial system. This predates everything Moses laid down. This predates the nation of Israel. Jesus predates all of that. And why does he predate all of that? Because he's eternally the son of God. He predates creation. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to make that connection with us now. If he is preeminent, if he is the one who is suited to the task, his task is awesome. His role is amazing. His gift to us and our allegiance to him is undeniable. Everyone knew the story of Melchizedek and how Abraham was a servant of his and how Abraham paid him honor. And so the author says, once you see that connection between who Melchizedek is and who Jesus is and how Jesus is a forerunner of what Melchizedek was and he's greater than Melchizedek, Every ounce of respect we had for the priesthood goes to Jesus. Every hope we had in the priesthood goes to Jesus. Every ounce of faith we had that they would make sin right goes to Jesus. We can forget the priests of the Old Testament. Their time has passed, and it will not be renewed. And we can forget the priests of today. They are unnecessary since we have Jesus, the great high priest, who is still crying out to God on our behalf with prayers and supplications, always making known to him what we are dealing with. We have no need, once again, for animals or men to stand between us and God when we have Jesus. The question becomes for us, he is suited to the task Will we acknowledge that He is all we need? That His sacrifice, His priesthood is all we need? Or will we ask for God to do more, to do differently? He is suited to the task. You need no one and nothing else to happen for your sins to be forgiven but to cry out to Christ, Save me. And He will. He doesn't have to deal with his own sin. He only deals with yours, and he deals with it perfectly. He's suited to the task. Will you let him fulfill that task on your behalf? Let's pray as the team comes up. Father, we are grateful. How do we put into words, Lord, that all we need is Christ? How do we put into words that he is sufficient, because we're surrounded by insufficiencies in our entire life. Lord, your son is suitable. He is the greatest high priest there ever was and is. May he grant us forgiveness for our sins. May he restore in us faith and hope. And may we, Father, love him and love others in his name. In his name we pray. Amen.
1: Let's sing this next song to our final, our great high priest, Jesus. He is our living hope
0: because the grave did not hold him. He was raised from the dead and he is alive and active
1: today. Amen. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb, in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke Your name into the night. Then through the darkness Your i The silence, the roaring lion, declared the grave has no claim.
0: I pray that he's your living hope because I know that throughout this week he will watch over you and guide you and guard you and demonstrate his mercy and amazement in how he forgives the smallest and the greatest of your sins alike. Amen? Amen. Go and have a great week. God bless you and see you back next week because it only gets better. I say that every week, but it does. Bye, everyone.